Well, I'm going to open in a word of prayer as we uh, ask the Lord to uh, open our hearts to His Word this morning as we continue in our series in the book of Judges, our new series titled Peril and Promise. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, we just thank You for this morning and uh, just the, the great opportunity to come and worship You. Thank you for the, the powerful truths we were reminded of in those songs that we just sang. And Lord, you truly are worthy. We, uh, we lift you on high and we praise your name. And we're going to see your reason for worthiness and praise even again today as we look to your word. And so uh, thank you, Jesus. Open our hearts and minds now as we look to this second uh, chapter in the book of Judges. I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly. And uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just illuminate these truths for us and uh, help us to see where they apply to our own lives and then help us to walk in obedience to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past month, on December 1st, the city of Munich, Germany, awoke being rocked by a powerful explosion. Right outside the central train station there in Munich, they were doing construction on one of the rail lines when an excavator accidentally dug into a 500-pound bomb left over from World War II. This bomb exploded and caused debris to fly for hundreds and hundreds of yards in every direction. Four people were seriously injured, taken to the hospital. The excavator, this massive machine, was turned over, flipped upside down, and it was... A serious, serious situation, as you can imagine, shut down that whole region of the city for, for a period of days. Interestingly, I discovered as I was reading about this scene from this past month that this isn't a rare occurrence in the country of Germany. In fact, they find almost every year 2,000 pounds, every year 2,000 pounds of unexploded bombs left over from World War II 70 years ago. Experts estimate that over 15% of the bombs that were dropped by the British and the Americans on the nation of Germany in World War II, upwards of 15% of those remain unexploded. And every year, on a regular basis, uh, they uncover, and sometimes with tragic consequences, these unexploded bombs found throughout the nation of Germany. As I was thinking about this story in preparation for our series in the book of Judges, I, I was reminded how, just like these unexploded bombs, we allow worldliness and sin to remain in our lives to great peril. This was the reality for the story in the story of the nation of Israel. As we began to look at last week in our introduction to the book of Judges, the nation of Israel, like is common for so many of us, had allowed compromise to come into their lives. They had allowed themselves to become accommodated to the culture around them, the worldliness and the paganism around them. And, and that worldliness remained in their presence like unexploded bombs waiting to go off. I think we all know those realities ourselves, how so oftentimes in our lives we become comfortable with our sins, we become comfortable in our accommodation to the, to the ways of the world and the enticements of the world, the trappings of this world. And it becomes so easy to think that we can just live among these things without any consequence. And so we allow sin to remain in our lives unchecked, undealt with. But sadly, before long, like these bombs in the nation of Germany, that sin will explode. 
And this is what we see taking place in the book of Judges with the nation of Israel. This is really one of the core principles that lies at the heart of the book of Judges. The idea of the consequence that comes from unconfessed, unrepented sin. Sin left undealt with in our lives. Why are we studying the book of Judges? Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul gives us some interesting words in regards to the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul tells us that God has given us the Old Testament. He, he says, now these things happened to them, to the nation of Israel, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So, so Paul reminds these New Testament Christians that, that God has given us the Old Testament and all of the stories of the people of Israel to help guide us. They, they were given to us as an example so that we would learn from the mistakes that God's people had made in previous generations. We're now blessed to, to know the, the Lord, the Messiah who's come, but we can still look back to God's Word in the Old Testament to gain some very, uh, very significant instruction and lessons. And so this is why we're studying the book of Judges here at Lakes Free in the coming weeks. In spite of all of its ugliness and depravity and chaos, like we talked about last week, there are some powerful lessons that we can learn in this book as we look to the example of the Israelites and, and the choices they made, the, the choices for peril and the choices for promise. The same choices, friends, that you and I are confronted with every single day in our own lives. Are we going to choose God's way? Or are we going to choose to go the way that we think is best? The, the way of the world, the way of temptation, the way of the enticements of this, this fallen culture that we're a part of. Now again, just to remind you of the context of the book of Judges, this, this book covers a 300-year period in the life of the nation of Israel. It, it covers roughly a quarter of the Old Testament history. And, and this book is found right after God has led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, They've wandered in the wilderness being led by Moses, the great leader of the Israelites. When Moses passed away, Moses' prodigy, uh, Joshua, took over the leadership of the nation of Israel. And Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham a thousand years earlier. God was going to give him this land. He was going to make him into a great nation. And all the people of the world were going to be blessed through through him and his descendants. And so now Joshua has led the Israelites into the promised land, and they've begun the conquest of this pagan land that God had given them. Remember, God said to the Israelites, we want you to drive out the Canaanites. We want you to rid this land of all of its evil and wickedness and perversion. You're to drive them out, and I'm going to establish you in the land as a holy, righteous people. I'm going to establish you here to be a, a lighthouse to the world, shining brightly the, the light of what it means and what it looks like to walk faithfully with the, in the gospel, in the, in the good news of a relationship with the true God, with our true creator. But as we saw last week, the Israelites compromised in that cause. They began to assimilate themselves with the, with the pagan people that God had called them to drive out. They began to choose not for God, but against God. And as we saw last week, they quickly went from the mountaintop of faith down the slippery slope of compromise until they found themselves in the valley of tears. 
Well, well, last week, if you remember, was the first part of a two-part introduction to the book of Judges. The, the first part of the introduction was the book of Judges in this 300-year period of Israel's history from the Israelites' perspective. That, that's what we looked at last week. It was basically an overview of this period from the perspective of the people who had lived it. Now today, we're going to see a second introduction to the book of Judges. And this second introduction comes from God's perspective. So, so what we're going to read today is really what God viewed taking place in this 300-year period of Israel's history from his divine vantage point. Now, if you've ever had the chance, one of, one of my family's favorite activities when we, have, we go on vacation to national parks and different places is to climb fire towers or big lookout towers, right? And uh, you can find these all over the country. And, and it's great when you climb these massive towers, you get up above the trees and you get this aerial perspective of the land all around you. I remember a few years ago when we were up in Door County, Wisconsin on vacation, we had taken the ferry across uh, Death's Door over to Washington Island. And uh, on Washington Island, it's not a very big island, but it's, a, it's an island that's populated year-round. And we had taken our bikes, and we were going to bike around Washington Island. Well, we had never been there before, and we discovered that there was a big lookout tower. They, had a, they have a, a Mountain View Park, it's called, and there's a lookout tower there that you can climb to the top of. And from the top of this tower, you can see out all across the whole island. And so the very first thing we did when we set out on our bike ride around the island, we went to this lookout tower, and from the top of the tower, we got this incredible vantage point of the whole island. And it was really great because it really made our experience of riding our bikes through the countryside so much more enjoyable because we had had this expansive view of, of the territory that we were going to be covering during that day. And, and that's exactly what we're doing here today in the book of Judges when we read chapter 2 into chapter 3. This second introduction is really a God's eye view of this period in the nation of Israel. We're going to dig into the specifics of this period in the coming weeks as we look at the stories of the various judges. But today what we're going to see are these major themes from God's perspective, major themes about what took place in the life of Israel during this 300-year period. So we're in Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through chapter 3, verse 6 this morning. I want to read our passage, and then I want to come back and I want to highlight three of these major themes that we see from this God's eye view, this God's eye perspective of the book of Judges. Let's take a look at our passage this morning. Chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. 
They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. So they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and all the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Lebo, Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods." Now again, friends, here we've been given a 300-year God's-eye view of everything that we're going to study in the book of Judges. In our passage this morning, in this second introduction to the book of Judges, we really discover three primary themes that we're going to see working themselves out as we study God's book of Judges here in the coming weeks. The first theme that we see in this, this God's-eye view of the book of Judges is we see the theme of a forgetful generation. Verses 6-10 through 10 begins identifying the root problem in the nation of Israel at this time, the, the generation that had forgotten the Lord. President Ronald Reagan once said, if we ever forget that we are a nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. Those were wise wise words from our former president, and words that not only apply to our circumstances here in the United States, but words that are equally applicable to any nation throughout history. If we ever forget the reality of who we are as, as creations of the ultimate creator God of the universe, if we ever forget that ultimately our 
blessings and privileges come from him, we will soon find ourselves in a rapid state of decline and decay. And that's exactly the situation that took place in the nation of Israel. Our passage opens up in verses 6 through 10 where we find this tragic picture of the rapid spiritual decline that took place in the nation of Israel shortly after the time of Joshua. In just one generation, friends, in just one generation, Israel goes from a people of fidelity to a people of forgetfulness. It just took one generation. The the key point of this section is found in verse 10. Verse 10 says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There arose another generation who did not know the Lord. How did this happen? How did this take place? How did Israel go from this experience where they had just been led out of captivity in Egypt, they had witnessed God's faithfulness and so many of his miracles as they wandered in the wilderness, they had witnessed Joshua leading them miraculously into the promised land, beginning to take the Canaanites. And that generation, Joshua's generation, passed away. And there arose a new generation who did not know the Lord. How did this happen? Let me tell you a story about a sailboat. Years ago, we were up at our family's cabin in northern Wisconsin, and it was early in the year, and the lake had recently uh, thawed off, and people were you know, starting to put their docks and boats in. And, and uh, we had gone up to our cabin one uh, early summer weekend, and as we arrived at our cabin, we discovered that there was a sailboat that was washed up against our shoreline. Now, our shoreline there at our lake is very rocky, and this sailboat was just getting smashed against the rocks on our shoreline by the waves and the wind. And my brother and I, we ran down to examine this sailboat, and we quickly discovered that this sailboat was just completely swamped with water, and it had holes and dents in it from being pounded up against the rocks. Probably, you know, who knows, maybe over a week it had been there getting pounded against the shoreline. Well, my brother and I, you know, with all our might, we took this sailboat. It was about a 15-footer. It was a pretty big sailboat. We pulled it up on the shore, and we didn't know who it belonged to. We, we didn't know where it had come from. It obviously had drifted across the lake from somewhere. So, so we just pulled it up on shore thinking somebody's going to come looking for this sailboat. Well, sure enough, later that weekend, the, the owners of this sailboat were driving around the lake trying to figure out where their boat went. And, and they came up, and we went out, and we talked to them, and we discovered that these, these owners of this sailboat, they usually would leave it tied out in the lake to an anchor that was about 20 feet underwater. And they had a big, you know, bunch of cinder blocks down there, and they had a rope, and they, they had it, you know, chained up there. But these owners had failed to maintain that anchor line. They, they didn't bother to, to examine the anchor line from the year before to see if it was still sound, to see if it was still in good shape. And, and that anchor line, over the course of however many years, had begun to war and fray. And, and at some point in the past week, that anchor line broke because they failed to do their due diligence in, in maintaining it and, and keeping it up. And so that anchor line broke, and the boat became unmoored, and the boat began to drift. And it found its way all the way across the lake where it began to be washed and battered up against the shore to significant consequence. It, it, it had holes. It had major damage. And sadly, the reality is the same thing can happen 
in the lives of individuals and in the lives of nations. We can make the same, the same mistakes. We see this in the nation of Israel. How did this happen? How did they go from one generation walking faithfully with the Lord to another generation that forgets the Lord? Well, the first thing that we discover is they were uncommitted. The second generation was uncommitted. They had failed to tend their lines. They had failed to, to, to keep their connection to their anchor strong and secure. They were uncommitted in their walk with the Lord. See, unlike their parents' generation, the next generation failed to invest in their walk with God. You know, it's often our temptation to think that, well, the previous generation must have done something wrong. Maybe the previous generation wasn't faithful in training up their kids and passing on the faith to them. And, and so it's easy for us to, you know, to, to put the blame on the previous generation. And that can happen, but that's not what happened at this point in, in Israel's history. That, that's not what took place. If you look at verse 7 in our passage, we find right at the outset that the people under Joshua served the Lord all of their days. And all the days of the elders who, who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work the Lord had done. These were a faithful people. These were a people who served the Lord, Joshua's generation. And so this implies that they had passed on their faith to their kids. This implies that they had faithfully lived out their faith and modeled that to their kids. But it was their kids who remained uncommitted. It was the second generation that failed to keep their connection to the anchor firm and secure. It was they who made that choice. Now, now parents here, I, I think this should serve as a great encouragement to us this morning because here's the reality. Sometimes God-honoring parents can do everything right. We can raise our kids and train them up in the Lord. We can pray for them. We can take them to Sunday school. We can, we can do everything right, modeling our faith to our kids. And yet our kids can still choose to walk away from the Lord. That's the sad reality of it. I, I once heard a comment, a speaker once said, God has no grandchildren, only children. That's interesting, isn't it? God has no grandchildren. You know what? Your faith won't count for your kids. They can't ride into heaven on your coattails. They have to choose for themselves to follow Jesus. They have to choose for themselves to honor the Lord. And each generation is accountable to God for their own walk with Him. He has no grandchildren, only children. And so, parents, here's your responsibility. Your responsibility as Christian parents can be summed up in three words. Okay? Train, take, and trust. Train them up in the Lord. Okay? So you teach the faith. You model the faith. You do everything you can to train your kids up in the Lord. Then you take them to the Lord in faith in terms of prayer. You take them to the Lord every day and you pray for them. And you bombard the throne room of heaven for your kids. And you pray that God would raise them up to love Jesus, right? You take them to the Lord. And then you trust them to the Holy Spirit. You trust that the Holy Spirit will ultimately do that work in their hearts, drawing them to Jesus one day. But that's our responsibility as Christian parents. 
We can't force our kids into the kingdom, but we can train them up, we can take them to the Lord, and then we can trust them to Him. So the question becomes, obviously, well, where did this next generation of Israelites go wrong? If you had a faithful generation that followed Joshua, and when that generation passed away, this next generation forgot the Lord, well, how did they go wrong? Well, verse 10 tells us they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They did not know the Lord. Now, that's an interesting statement because that term know in the Hebrew is the word yada. And the knowledge that it speaks of there is an intimate, personal, experiential kind of knowledge. Okay, this isn't book knowledge. This is an experiential knowledge. Let me, let me share an illustration with you. When I was a kid, my mom, my mom was a great cook. I, I still love my mom's cooking to this day. But my mom would regularly make one particular dish that I just could not stand. It, it was her beef stew. And like, you know, it's like, ah, oh, you know, it's like you throw it in the crock pot, it's all this cubed meat, and you know, you throw in all these vegetables and, you know, tomato sauce or whatever is in there. And like, I don't know what it was, but my mom would make this beef stew at least like once a month, it seemed. And I couldn't stand the beef stew. You know, I, I'd, I'd sit there playing with my food at the dinner table, you know, I'd kind of be plopping it around in the bowl. I'd be like, hey, mom, look over there, and I'd shovel some to my dog real quick, you know. I mean, anything I could to get out of eating this beef stew. Now, here's the thing. Without doubt, whenever my mom would serve beef stew and they'd, you know, she'd see me going through these rituals of, you know, trying to get rid of this beef stew somehow, hide it in my other food or give it to the dog. Without doubt, my mom would always say the same words to me. She would say, Jason, don't you know that there are starving kids in Africa? Have you heard that one before? Right. I mean, without fail. Don't you know there's starving kids in Africa? Well, here's the thing. I know there's starving kids in Africa. I mean, I'm not stupid. I've watched the news. I've seen the pictures, right? I, I know there are kids starving over in Africa. But I'm the one with this junkie bowl of beef stew in front of me. You know what I'm saying? Like, what am I supposed to do about the starving kids in Africa? I got to eat this beef stew. But friends, here's the thing. Later on in my life, I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world. And I've been to places where I've seen starvation. I've smelled starvation. I've held starvation. And you want to know something? When I experienced starvation personally, it affected me. It affected me to the very core of my being. And that's what God means here when he tells us that there arose another generation who did not know the Lord. It wasn't that that generation didn't know who God was and hadn't heard the stories of what God had done for Israel. It wasn't that they hadn't seen their parents model faith to them. It was that they personally didn't know the reality of the faithful God of Israel and who he was. They didn't know that experientially for themselves. The second generation in the book of Judges, they, they knew God intellectually, but they didn't know Him experientially. Why not? It's because they stopped walking in faith. They were uncommitted. They became apathetic. They became complacent. They failed to invest in the thing that mattered most, their walk with the Lord. 
Friends, you remember Moses' great command in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 and 5, called the Shema? The, the great command of Israel. Moses says to the Israelites, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That was Israel's top priority. And yet this second generation failed to do that. They failed to invest. And so in remaining uncommitted, they eventually became unmoored. They became unmoored. They had failed to invest in their relationship with the Lord. And so we see in the book of Judges how this next generation of Israelites quickly finds themselves adrift on a sea of spiritual confusion and moral compromise. Verse 11 and 12 says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods. They became spiritually unmoored. They found themselves adrift on a sea of paganism and spiritual confusion. They ended up serving the gods of the Canaanites, the Baals. The the term Baal is a term that simply means Lord. There, There was a god Baal in Canaan that was the chief god. He was a fertility god that the Canaanite peoples worshipped. But there were many Baals, many lords, many smaller gods that the Canaanites worshipped as well. And so you had this this paganism that was rampant in the land of Canaan, a paganism that was supposed to be removed by the Israelites, but that they had allowed to remain in their presence. And these Baals, these fertility gods, were worshipped by the people of Israel. Baal was the male god. Ashtaroth was the female god. And they would worship these two gods in some of the most historically perverse pagan cultic practices in all of history. Ritual pagan prostitution, ritual sex acts, ritual child sacrifice. I mean, it was the most abhorrent religious time in the history of the world. And God said, you drive these wicked people out of the promised land, but they failed to do that. And then they themselves began to serve these false gods. They fell into idolatry. Now, friends, understand, we can just as easily fall prey to the very same error in our lives today. Maybe not the worship of Baal, but but certainly chasing after false idols. See, See, when we too fail to invest in our relationship with the Lord, friends, please understand this this morning, that is not a neutral decision. If you choose not to invest in your walk with the Lord... You are making a choice. That's not a neutral decision. Because the reality is we will always invest ourselves somewhere in something. Don't ever think that just because you're not pursuing the God of Scripture that you're not pursuing something. And don't believe that not worshiping the God of the Bible means that you're not worshiping anything. See, we all choose our gods. We're all in pursuit, and we all worship. The question is, are the gods you're choosing to pursue and worship truly satisfying the deepest longings of your heart? See, the problem with the false idols of our world is they promise satisfaction, but they can never truly deliver. And that's what we see play out throughout the nation of Israel. 
because of their lack of commitment and as a result of becoming unmoored. The third thing we see throughout the book of Judges is that these Israelites became unwell. They found themselves in a place of great despair, oppressed by their sins. Friends, this is the only logical end for a people who fail to honor the one true God. That's the only logical end. Remember, we need to, 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 to keep in mind who we were made by and what we were made for. Remember how the Gospel of John opens? The Gospel of John opens in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, the Word, the Logos, the Creator, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, And without him was not anything made that was made. And in him, our creator, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So so here we're reminded by the Apostle John that we were created by a creator God who made all things. And we were made by him and for him. And in him is life. And the life that he offers is the light of men. In him is life and light. In him is joy and hope and peace and satisfaction and fulfillment. All of that is found in a relationship with our creator God. And so to reject him, friends, is to be disconnected from the source of life. To reject him is to to stumble blindly in the darkness. And here's the thing, if you live that way long enough, you're eventually going to find yourselves where the Israelites found themselves. As verse 15 describes, they were in terrible distress. That's the only logical end for a life disconnected from our Creator. For a life stumbling through the darkness. And again, friends, this all happened because a single generation did not know the Lord. They were uncommitted. They became unmoored. They found themselves unwell because they had never truly experienced the joy and power and blessing of a relationship with Him. Friends, do you want to truly know God? Not, not just like book knowledge, not reading about God, but truly knowing Him intimately, experientially. Do you, do you want to know Him with a passionate, vibrant kind of a relationship? If you want to know God like that, here's the key. Two things. Number one, you've got to invest in your relationship with the Lord. You've got to invest in it. You've got to tend the lines. You gotta check your anchor lines. You gotta check your 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 moorings. Right? Anything good in our lives requires investment. Any growth that takes place requires sacrifice and time and commitment. If you want to grow in your walk with the Lord, you need to make that commitment. But secondly, if you want to experience a vibrant, true faith, you have to trust. You have to walk by faith. You have to step out in faith. You have to believe and trust God to do in your life and through your life things that only He can do. You can't just sit around complacently thinking like, 
well, I'm just going to wait for God to do some miracle. No, God does the miracles when we step out in faith, trusting him to do great things. I I heard a great story this past Sunday. Between our services, uh, one of our friends, Justin Wilson, came up to me. Justin Wilson's been here at Lakes Free from the very beginning, and, and Justin was sharing with me Great story. He had seen one of our elders last week pray for communion, Billy Sternat, a young man in our church who's now an elder here. And Justin comes up and he just shares. He says, Jason, that was so great to see. He, he didn't really even know who Billy was, but he said, Jason, I want to tell you something. I remember years ago when, when this property was just a big hole in the ground. We all gathered around that hole and we prayed We prayed that God would use this place to reach this community and to raise up a new generation of followers of Jesus Christ. He said, Jason, I can't tell you how much it blessed my heart to just to see Billy up there, one of the new leaders in our church, a young man, and to look around in our worship service and see all the young families. He says, God's been faithful. God's answered those prayers. Isn't that awesome? And it all started with a group of people who took a huge step of faith. They sacrificed their time, their resources, their money, and they said, God, we're going to trust you to do some incredible things with this hole in the ground. We're going to trust you to build your church and use it to make a huge impact in this community. And we've seen God's faithfulness in that, friends. I want you to think this morning. What adventure might God be calling you to? What what might he be asking you to to step out in faith in pursuit of? How how might God want you to use your life? And, And not just use your life, but to do something for the kingdom that is so audacious that there's no way it could ever happen unless his power was behind it. How might God want to use you, friends? Is that the greatest miracle God wants to do with Lakes Free Church? What he did here 30 years ago? Or does God have more miracles for us? Does God have more great adventures in store for us? See, if you want to know a vibrant, passionate faith, the the kind of faith, the yada kind of faith, the, the intimate, knowing God kind of faith, it comes by investing in your walk with the Lord and then stepping out in faith and trusting Him. And friends, I'd encourage you this morning, if you want to know that kind of faith, here's the deal. Just start praying this prayer. Just start praying, God, I want you to use me, and I'm going to make myself available to you, but Lord, show me how you might want to use me for your kingdom. And I'm going to trust you to do great things, things that I could never do on my own. But I'm just going to start praying that prayer on a regular basis. Lord, how do you want to use me? What do you want to do through my life? And I promise you, friends, just wait and see what God does. Because he'll answer that prayer. I don't know what that prayer is going to look like for you individually. I don't even know what it will look like collectively for us as a church. But but if we start praying that way, trust me, God will use you. And you will know the thrill of a passionate faith like never before. Second theme we see in our passage this morning, and we're going to go through these last two quickly. 
Second theme we see in our passage this morning from our God's eye view of the book of Judges is we discover a foolish cycle that repeats itself time and time again in the book of Judges. In fact, we're going to see this cycle seven times throughout the book of Judges. In verse 11 through 23 of chapter 2, we see this cycle play out, this, this cycle of a sin-sick people spinning out of control. It, it reminds me of when my family and I went to Disney World a few years ago. My kids were, they were just little. I think they were like five and six years old, Caleb and Addie. You know, we went into Disney World. It was the first time there as a family. And, you know, you walk down Main Street, Disney, and the first place you come to is Fantasyland. And, and the very first ride you see when you come to Fantasyland are the Mad Hatter's teacups, right? And I'm thinking, hey, this is great. You know, there's Alice and the Mad Hatter. Oh, this will be a great ride. You know, kids' first ride in Disney World. You know, we'll just kind of ease into it. You know, let's not, not Space Mountain. Let's just do the teacups, you know, little kids with us and everything. It'll be fun. Look how cute it is, right? Well, we get on these teacups. Friends, it's called the Mad Hatter's teacups for a reason. These things start spinning around like crazy, and like they're going faster and faster. And I mean, like literally by the end of the ride, we're hanging on for dear life, feeling like we're about to puke. My kids are crying. They're like, this is horrible. I I thought this was like the happiest place on earth. No. (laughs) I mean, we literally walked around Disney World for like an hour afterwards just trying to catch our bearings after that. Okay, don't, don't, do, don't do the teacups. But I was reminded of that this week, thinking about the nation of Israel as we see them in this repeated cycle, this, this, this cycle spinning out of control. The cycle of a, a sin-sick people who have become unmoored from their anchor, from the Lord, and, and adrift on this sea of paganism. And, and we see this cycle here in verses 11 through 23. The the cycle has five parts, and we're going to see this five-part cycle as we go through the book of Judges in the coming months. You can write these terms down because this really is the key. If you got your Bible, you can write this down on the first page of the book of Judges. If you want to understand what Judges is all about, these five words, rebellion, retribution, remorse, relief, and repetition. That's the cycle we're going to see over and over again in the coming weeks. We're going to see the people of Israel rebel against God's ways. They're going to choose to follow the pagan gods of the Canaanites. They're going to do what God told them not to do. And then they're going to experience retribution as a result, the consequences of their sin. They're going to experience the consequences of their sin. They're going to find themselves in a place of remorse, of great distress. And God is going to bring relief. He's going to bring deliverance. But as we see in our passage this morning, the cycle will repeat. Because when God brings relief through the judges, the people of Israel ultimately turn their back on the judge and on the ways of God. And they fall back into this cycle over and over and over again. And I want you to notice something that we're going to see as we study the book of Judges. The cycle doesn't just repeat, but it actually spirals downwards into deeper and deeper levels of depravity. Look at verse 19 in our passage from this morning. Whenever the judge died, the people turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them, so that they did not drop any of their practices 
or their stubborn ways. Friends, the, the cycle doesn't just repeat. It spirals downwards. It, it's, it, it's like Israel's a star sucked into the vortex of a black hole, spinning out of control, finding themselves foolishly and tragically entrapped in a downward spiral of habitual sin. That's what we see throughout the book of Judges. And understand this, friends, that's how rebellion against God always works. Not just in the life of the Israelites, but that's how rebellion of God against God works in our own lives. It, it starts out so enticing. Right? We have this choice before us, the, the, the way of the world or the way of God. And, and the way of the world and, and the way of sin and rebellion, it often looks so enticing and so appealing and so attractive. And it always starts out that way. It promises great pleasure, but it only ends up delivering an endless cycle of increasing peril and pain. That's the way sin always works, friends. But here's the good news this morning. There's more going on here in the book of Judges than just the tragic story of a people caught in a downward cycle of sin and rebellion. Because you see, Judges is also the story about a God who keeps his promises. It's a story of a God full of amazing grace. And this is the third theme we're going to see throughout our study in Judges. We're going to see the reality of a faithful God. Throughout this book, we're going to see how God repeatedly shows his faithfulness to the people of Israel, even in the midst of their ongoing cycles of sin and rebellion. How, how does God show his faithfulness? We're going to see it in two ways. Number one, he shows his faithfulness by testing Israel. By testing Israel. Now you might be thinking, well, how, how is that faithful, right? Like, How is that showing his faithfulness, testing Israel? Well, he tests them by leaving the pagan nations there among them. We saw in our passage this morning, God says, look, I'm not going to remove the Canaanites. You disobeyed me, and now I'm going to leave them there. Why does God leave them there? He says for two reasons. He says, number one, I'm going to leave them there to teach the Israelites war. Now, now you might be thinking, well, that's really strange, right? Like to teach them war. Understand this. He's not talking about bow and arrows and swords and spears. That's not what he's talking about. If there's anything we learn from studying the Old Testament, it's that Israel was never a nation of great warriors. These were Bedouin shepherds. Every single war, every single battle Israel ever fought, they were delivered by the hand of God, not by the might of humans. God didn't leave the Canaanites there to teach the Israelites to become a warrior culture. No, he left them there to teach them faith. That's what he means when he says to teach them war. I'm going to teach them that I'm the one who delivers them from their enemies. I'm going to teach them that in spite of their enemies having iron chariots, I'm the God who wipes iron chariots off the face of the earth and drowns them in the depths of the sea. God wants to teach his people faith. And then secondly, he's going to leave the pagan nations there with them to teach them obedience. He's going to allow the temptation and the enticements of the Canaanites to remain in their midst so that they can learn some of those hard lessons that come from choosing against God instead of choosing for God. And friends, this is all part of God's faithfulness. Testing. It goes back to what we've studied before in the book of James, right? In James chapter 1, 
The Apostle James reminds us, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Friends, understand this. This is a biblical principle from the Old Testament to the New. God will allow testing to come into our lives because he uses that testing to develop us, to mold us, to shape us into the people he desires us to be for all of eternity. Now, the testing isn't always pleasant, and it's not always easy. But, but really, no test ever is, right? And, and any benefit we get from the test, it, it comes through going through it and the trials and the challenges of it. it it's like a good coach. I, I remember growing up playing football, right? I had some great coaches, And those coaches, they would put me through the trials of practice, the hardships of practice, because they wanted me to be a winner when it came time to play the game. And so they put me through the challenge and the trials in practice to shape me to become a winner. And if they had done anything less, we would say that that wasn't a faithful coach. He wasn't being faithful to me. He wasn't being faithful to his team. No, a faithful coach puts you through the trials to prepare you to become a champion. And this is exactly the same way that our Heavenly Father works in our lives. God will put us through the trials of life to challenge us, to shape us, to mold us into the champions He's desiring us to be for all of eternity. But then secondly... God shows his faithfulness to Israel by giving them judges. And the judges that we see throughout Israel, these are not black robe, you know, Supreme Court type judges. The judges of Israel are military deliverers. These are people that God raises up to deliver his people from their oppressors, oppression, uh, oppressors and oppression. He raises up these military leaders, and this is what we're going to see in the coming weeks. God faithfully raising up these leaders out of his amazing grace, even when his people remain unfaithful to him, he will prove himself faithful to them. And one of the interesting things we're going to see as we study the book of Judges is that the book of Judges is ultimately pointing us to our true deliverer, to our true judge. Because what we're going to see in the coming weeks is all of these judges were finite, fallible characters. They all had their flaws. They all had their failures. They all had their lack of faith. They, they saved people by killing people. Jesus saved people by giving his life. right? And, and so what we're going to see as we study the judges is that the judges of Israel are ultimately pointing us to the greatest judge God is going to provide. Jesus Christ. And that's the hope of the book of Judges. That's the ultimate promise of the book of Judges. That a deliverer is coming. We know this deliverer today in Jesus Christ. And friends, we're going to see in the coming weeks, if you yourself want to escape the cycle of sin and rebellion and remorse that the Israelites found themselves on over and over and over again, the only way to escape that cycle is is to look to our true deliverer, Jesus Christ. That's the promise found in the book of Judges. 
that we have a faithful God who's provided deliverance for us in His Son, Jesus. And when we trust in Him, He promises us to make us a new creation. He promises to get us off that spinning wheel. And He gives us the hope and power to overcome the peril of this world. And then close on a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank You for this opportunity once again this morning to study Your Word, to look to Your promises, and to be reminded of all that You've done for us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, that we don't have to be trapped in this endless cycle of sin and rebellion and the consequences that come from it, but that, like the book of Judges points us to, You have sent us a true Deliverer, an ultimate Deliverer in Your Son, Jesus. And I pray, God, that we would all look to Christ and and lean on Christ and His power to break the cycle of sin and rebellion in our own lives. That in You we would find not only the victory over sin, but the power and motivation to continue walking in faithfulness as we look to You and as we rely on You. You are our hope, Lord. You are our deliverer. We thank You, God, for Your faithfulness and for Your amazing grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 12. And now may the grace and peace of God be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, the yada, the experiential knowledge of God, and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you, friends. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.